welcome to the podcast Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Many questions remain unanswered in the years following the McStay family's disappearance in Southern California in 2010. Joseph, 40, and Summer McStay, 43, drove away from their Fallbrook, California home with their two sons, four-year-old Gianni and three-year-old Joseph Jr., never to be seen again. Years later, however, a devastating discovery changed the course of the entire case. What took place on the evening of February 4th, 2010? And how did the family end up discovered nearly four years later in two shallow graves? By the end of this story, you'll be perplexed as to whether there was more than one murderer. Once more evidence was collected, there was no doubt about it. Greed was the motivating factor. This case involves the fatalities of children. Therefore, an additional content warning is advised. So this week we visit what may be the best place in the world to eat avocados. Do you have any idea? I have no idea where avocados come from. Well, mostly from Mexico and California. But to be specific, we are going to Fallbrook, California, where there are thousands of avocado trees. And every year they celebrate with an event called the Avocado Festival. Over 70,000 people attend and watch or participate in various contests, including witnessing the largest avocado and sampling freshly prepared guacamole. So the next time you go to the grocery store to pick out an avocado, check to see if it's from Fallbrook, California. I want to go to the festival. I know. Does that sound amazing? I dress up like an avocado. (laughs) Now, this amazing location became the new home for a lovely family of four. There was Joseph Sr. and Summer. And they had two adorable sons together, Gianni and Joseph Jr. Now, before they had children, Joseph McStay and Summer Martelli met in the summer of 2004, and they instantly clicked. Joseph ran a successful business called Earth Inspired Products. The business that he ran specialized in stunning wall-mounted fountains. And you probably have seen something like this in a corporate building or a fancy hotel. The majority of the products that he designed were custom for the client. And sometimes by request, they included the client's company logo on the glass where the water would cascade. They became so popular that he began shipping them out of the U.S., Joseph hired two people to help him with his business, Dan Cavanaugh and Charles Merritt, or Chase as he's commonly known. 
Dan was the tech-savvy guy who developed and overseen the company's website, which was important because most of the business sales came from this website. And Chase was the phenomenal welder on the team who would put together Joseph's projects. Now, Joseph's girlfriend, Summer, at the time, was a successful real estate agent, and she was head over heels in love with Joseph. Summer ended her relationship with her boyfriend at the time, Vic, and Joseph and Summer have been inseparable ever since. Summer and Joseph welcomed their first child, Gianni, in 2006, and they married the next year. And Joseph Jr. was born the following year. They soon were entering their next chapter in their lives, and so they moved from Big Bear, California to Fallbrook, California in December of 2009, where they purchased their family home. This happy family included two wonderful, adorable children, two dogs, and two loving and caring parents who would do anything for anyone and a successful business. Then out of nowhere was Joseph's unexplained illness, which doctors couldn't even diagnose. Now, according to Joseph's business partner, Chase, the welder, he stated that Joseph talked about the what ifs, if his wife was poisoning him. And then months after he started to get sick on February 4th, 2010, the house that they just purchased two months prior became vacant. Their belongings were scattered throughout the house. The house was under renovation, but was left unfinished. There wasn't the sound of the little kids running back and forth down the hallway in the house. And Joseph's business, which was the family's livelihood, was put on hold. Emails and phone calls for the business remain unanswered. His voicemail box was full and all clients were waiting to receive a response from Joseph. With the family's current situation, it was impossible to understand how could this family of four just completely vanish? So did they leave like their furniture and, and all their belongings at the house also? Everything was left. There were totes with clothes. Everything was left like, behind. Yeah, just untouched. Yeah. Now, Patrick McStay, Joseph's father, first suspected something was wrong when he received a call from Dan Kavanaugh, which was unusual and unexpected. He actually didn't even recognize the name that flashed up on his phone at first, and so he didn't answer it. Then he received an email from the same person, but it quickly became clear Dan Kavanaugh is the man who worked with Joseph. He's the all-around tech guy, the one in charge of operating the website for the business. Michael McStay, Patrick McStay's other son and Joseph's brother, decided to return Dan Kavanaugh's call. And he told him that he had not heard from Joseph. The emails and the order requests, according to Dan Kavanaugh, were left untouched. And he was unsure as to where Joseph was. It was odd that he would just leave his business so abruptly when it was doing so well and he was always on top of things when it came to his clients and handling orders. The last time anyone has heard from Joseph was on February 4th, 2010. Joseph's dad, Patrick, said that he got a call from him that day and there was also Chase Merritt who stated that he most definitely was the last person to have seen Joseph, which was also on February 4th, 2010. It seemed strange at this point, but at the same time, they were very busy people. After calling day after day and getting no response, Joseph's dad, Patrick McStay, became concerned. It got to the point where seven days had passed with no word from this family. 
Patrick was also in Texas, so it wasn't like he could just get in his car and drive over there to check on him. And so he phoned Joseph's brother, Michael, to go check on him at his home. Michael complained that he was too busy and he didn't have time to go over there. Chase Merritt, Joseph's employee and friend, was also concerned. He stated that he would call Joseph, but he never returned his calls. So after several days of not hearing from him, he decided to go over to the house, but no one answered the door. Chase informed Michael that he needed to file a missing persons report. Chase allegedly called him several times in order to file a missing persons report. And for whatever reason, Michael didn't act very quickly about his brother who seemed to disappear. On February 13th, nine days had passed. Chase and Michael arrived at Joseph's house. Because the door was locked, Michael entered the house through a window. The family's two dogs were left outside, which was strange. There was some rotten fruit that had been left out, and it smelled like rotten eggs. Aside from that, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. They just hadn't been home for some time. The family was known to be a little spontaneous, and maybe they took an impromptu mini-vacation to Mexico because it wasn't too far away. However, Michael decided to call the police two days later. The police then searched the house, but discovered nothing alarming. There was no blood and there was no sign of a struggle. There were no indications that the family was in any danger. The house was actually in the middle of a major remodel, so the floor was being removed and things were still in totes and boxes because they had just moved in two months ago. So it was normal to see the house in a bit of a transitional state. Family and friends were all questioned by the police And it appeared that the McStay family was going about their normal routine as usual. There was nothing going on that was alarming. I have to ask this because I know we have dog lovers. Like, did they leave food for the dogs? Was there water? Was this their only house? I know they were wealthy. Was this their only house being that they moved in two months ago? That I don't know. I'm not really sure, but that would be a really good thing to check. Family and friends were questioned by the police, and it appeared that the McStay family was going about their normal routine as usual. There was nothing going on that was alarming. They had recently purchased this house, and on the day when most people last heard from them on February 4th, 2010, Summer had made a call to her sister, and Joseph had called his father before heading to a meeting. And around 6 p.m., the couple was texting back and forth. There was nothing alarming. Their conversations all seemed normal. Now, late that night on the same day, the neighbor's security camera captured a vehicle pulling out of a McStay driveway. The dark, rainy video of the vehicle was very hard to determine what kind of vehicle it was. Maybe it was the family car, being that the car wasn't in the garage when the police searched the house. So the police look up the license plate to the family car. The car was actually towed on February 8th, after it had been parked at a parking lot since the 4th. It was about an hour away in San Ysidro, near the Mexico border. People frequently park their cars here and walk into Mexico. Now, the police looked at the CCTV footage near this area, and they discovered a video of a family that they believed to be the McStays, who were walking into Mexico. However, those who knew the family insisted that this was not them. Of course, the CCTV footage that captured the back of them walking into the Mexico border 
was horrible quality, but it could be easily assumed to be two adults and two young children. And you can see that the figures of these people walking resemble a man and a woman and two children their age. But there's no way to confirm that this is them 100%. But the police insisted that it was. While the family felt like they would have never left in the first place and had no reason to. Once police did more of a search on the family's belongings, there were Google searches on a laptop that made a bit more sense supporting this claim. Searches like life in Mexico, learning Spanish, crossing Mexico border, what document do children need to go to Mexico, living in Mexico, San Ysidro. This was more and more proof that the family decided to take off, but it just didn't seem right. Because there was no sign of foul play at the residence, the San Diego Sheriff's Department classified this as a voluntary missing persons case. However, there was nothing out of the ordinary that occurred to cause the McStays to want to leave the country, according to their friends and their family. With the recent purchase of their home, their business, which was thriving, they had no reason to abandon ship. However, absolutely nothing suspicious stood out to investigators as a red flag. In the meantime, the police advised them to not move anything in the house or manipulate anything in the house because it would lead to less evidence for them to use if they needed to look further into things. Now, in the following days, Joseph's brother, Michael, takes the computer from the house and Joseph's mother, Susan, cleans the house. Now, when you look at the big picture, everything makes sense. Joseph and Summer both had passports and were both missing from the home. However, they didn't need a passport to get into Mexico, but they would need it if they were to come back to the U.S. And being that they were expired, they would have no luck. Michael and Susan felt it was necessary to take over Joseph's business in order to keep it running. Joseph's dad, Patrick, on the other hand, he didn't want to do it. He felt hurt, and he felt like this wasn't right. It was really hard to understand why he left. Although he and Susan were divorced, the family began to fall apart even more, and Michael and Patrick didn't speak for years. And time went on, never hearing anything from Joseph, his wife, and their two kids. After four years and a few months, there was still no word from this family. It was November 11th, 2013, when a motorcycle rider called the police. He found what appeared to be a human skull in the Mojave Desert, north of Victorville and west of the 15 freeway. This was a very desolate area with no public roads and was not a popular tourist destination. It's about a two-hour drive from Fallbrook, California. As a result, an investigation had been launched and investigators inspect the site and discover two shallow graves containing skeletal remains that appeared to have been there for quite some time. Dental records confirmed that the two adult victims discovered were Joseph and Summer McStay, and two other sets of remains were found scattered and in pieces. It was believed that the remains were the two young sons. So all this time, they thought that they were on some mini vacation, and it turns out they're, they're dead. Yeah. For years. And think about it. If this motorcyclist didn't stop and wasn't looking around, this case would still be where it was four years from when this family went missing. 
It makes me wonder, did they ever check, like, their bank account? Like, were they spending money? Did they take a lump sum of money out before they left? How were they surviving? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, the police weren't actually able to check in on their bank account information because they feel like they just left. So there wasn't like a crime or anything like that at that time uh, that they had like to a, investigate. Like a privacy thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. But if they had, they would have found some information that would probably make them feel a little suspicious about this whole thing. Now, the family that has been buried here for four years had decayed entirely, leaving only skeletal remains and a few scraps of material that were once clothes. The skull that was identified as Joseph's showed signs of blunt force trauma to the back of the head. The remains of the two boys were discovered scattered, suggesting that they were found at some point by an animal. A sledgehammer was buried nearby as well, and it was assumed this was the murder weapon. Uh, so this crime probably happened out in the desert, like right where they were buried. Some believe, yeah, that's what happened. Now, this had to have been pretty shocking news at the time. I mean, four years and eight months passed with no idea that they had been buried this entire time. So a killer or killers have been just out walking around for four years. Chase, Joseph's close friend and business partner, expressed that he became numb at the news. Joseph's brother spoke at a police press conference, visibly upset that this was the outcome they faced. Some people who watched this claimed that his reaction was a bit forced. But all in all, who would do such a thing to this family, especially two little boys who are three and four years old? Now that this family has been discovered, discarded in the Mojave Desert, this voluntary missing persons case turned into a homicide investigation. And so it led to the suspicions of a few potential suspects. The two shallow graves discovered in this area were near a cell phone tower. Police were able to locate someone who had been very close to the family at the time of their disappearance. Cell phone data revealed the business partner and best friend, Chase Merritt's cell phone, had pinged from a nearby cell phone tower on February 6th. This is two days after the family went missing. So how far was this site away from, like, their house? It was about two hours of a drive. Oh, so there's, like, no reason that he would be out there or should be out there. There wasn't any reason, especially in this area, because there's no roads, there's no stores, there's nothing. There's a cell phone tower, but, I mean, it's all desert. Right, right. I'm curious to hear his excuse. Yeah, it gets interesting. Now, what's so interesting about this cell phone tower is it happened to be a short distance away from the burial sites. And there was a moment where the phone was turned off and then it was turned back on once it was traveling down the highway passing the gravesite. Well, that's suspicious. Yeah, I agree. So investigators dig deeper into Chase, the best friend and business partner of Joseph McStay. One thing led to another. Now, this is pretty convincing evidence. What's also interesting is there were tire tracks found in this area believed to be linked to Chase's truck. Like I said, this was a location where it wasn't common to travel. It was all desert. There were no stores, no roads. There was no reason to be out there. And investigators found tire tracks discovered near the burial site that just so happened to match Chase's tires to his truck. Oh, man. 
You know, it's weird. It's almost like the moon landing or something. Like, why are there still tire tracks after like four years? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like the wind didn't blow them away, like animals. Yeah. Nothing. It's nuts. After four years of thinking that this family up and left, the family's car that was parked at the parking lot was impounded. It was key to test this vehicle for DNA because at the time, this family was believed to have up and left on their own accord, and the vehicle was never tested. After checking for DNA, they discovered the obvious DNA of Joseph and Summer, but they also discovered a third DNA profile. It had to be Chase. Yes, Chase's DNA was discovered in the vehicle on the driver's side, which included the steering wheel, the gear shifter, and the four-wheel drive shifter. DNA was also discovered on the radio and the AC unit. Now, despite Chase's claims that he never drove the car, investigators believed that he was the last person to have used it and that he was the one who parked it near the Mexico border. Now, there was arguments that could this DNA maybe have been passed down through a handshake or something, like if somebody had a sweaty hand. And even though it's not likely, according to a forensic scientist, it's possible. So one thing I'm wondering is when Chase parked the car by the border, that's an hour and what, five minute drive, I think you said? Yeah. Like, how did he get back? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess he could have, like, rented a car or something, but then there would have been some type of documentation. But, like, did, they didn't find anything like that, right? No. Yeah, there there was nothing that I found that he rented a car or anything like that. It makes you kind of believe, could somebody have picked him up? Right. Two people could like, have Like, is somebody involved. else involved? Right. Were they suspicious of that? There was many suspects, actually, in this case that investigators looked at. It's just so insane to me that somebody actually staged the family missing on their own accord. And investigators believed this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite the setup. I mean, they put the car at the border. They, you know. Did the Google searches? Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, like, the computers had searches. Like, they put thought into this. Like, it was, there was preemptive. Yeah, it's very, very thought out. So during all of this where was Chase? Like, what was his backstory? So he explains that he was at home that night and did not leave. However, this did not correspond with the pinging of the cell phone tower, which was nearly two hours away from his home. And when he was questioned about the cell phone pings, he stated that the only time that he would ever be in the area would be when he was visiting his sister. Now, keep in mind, his sister lives six miles away from where the McStays were buried. Detectives went to his sister's house to ask a few questions and ask when was the last time that she saw him. And she said it's probably been five years or so. But in court, while testifying under oath, she says the opposite. She saw him frequently. But now, keep in mind, it had been nearly nine years since the McStays' disappearance and the trial started in January of 2019. As far as the cell phone data goes, Chase claims that it was all inaccurate. His cell phone location indicates that he was near the gravesite, but he explains that he was actually at his sister's house on the 6th, which is nearby. But then him turning off his cell phone when the pings had stopped for a moment was all around suspicious. The only data that they have is him driving for about 30 to 40 seconds along the highway, which is next to the gravesite. 
And, you know, it's just strange because his sister hadn't seen him in almost five years. So you would think that him stopping over around this time would be pretty fresh in her mind. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's that time of the year where I can honestly say, yes, it's exciting and wonderful, but let's be honest for a minute, it can be a lot. With the mix of stress and the seasonal blue bugs that seem to sneak themselves in, I need all the self-care available, and BetterHelp offers that safe and supportive space. Setting a time with my therapist once a week through BetterHelp is exactly what keeps me grounded and on the right path. Let me tell you one thing. There is no reason to feel guilty for needing to focus on your mental health. Therapy is something I look forward to each week, and I am proud to say that I have been with BetterHelp for more than a year now. BetterHelp is designed to be convenient and flexible for your busy schedule. Setting up therapy is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire and getting matched with a licensed therapist. And if that one doesn't work for you, it's easy to switch. And the best part is it's all online, so you don't have to drive anywhere. Instead, turn on that heated blanket and your laptop or your phone and get ready to give yourself a chance to beat the seasonal blues. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Salad today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Salad. Now, looking into Chase further, he had a few run-ins with the law. In the 1970s and also in the 1980s, he was sentenced to more than two years in prison for burglary, receiving stolen property, and violating parole. And in 2001, he was sentenced for grand theft and burglary. Summer always had a strange feeling about him because of his criminal background. He also had a gambling problem, spending lots of money at casinos. His bank statements showed that he had nearly $15,000 taken out at just casinos, and it would put him in a situation where he would almost have no money. Chase's job as Joseph's welder was known to be his sole source of income at the time. As far as Joseph and his family, they were clearly well off owning a thriving business and living comfortably. If money just so happened to leave from Joseph's business account, would he even notice it? Chase may have reasoned that a few thousand dollars here and there were nothing to Joseph. Now, Joseph used QuickBooks for the business, and it was discovered that it was being operated by someone other than Joseph on February 1st, on the 2nd, and on the 4th. Checks were being distributed in the name of Charles Merritt. And to refresh your memory, February 4th was the last day anyone spoke to Joseph, and checks were being created for Chase even on this day when the family went missing. So who else would have been accessing QuickBooks to write checks to Chase other than Chase himself? With the cell phone pings, the DNA in the car, and the checks in his name, Chase was looking like the suspect. Now, Chase has admitted that he was authorized to write checks from his QuickBooks, and he did it all the time. He also admitted to meeting Joseph at a Chick-fil-A on February 4th, where Joseph handed him the stack of checks that were written out to him. So if you take this in, Chase made the checks, he printed them out, but Joseph had the pile of checks to give to him. Could this be more of a, hey, I noticed that you were printing these checks. What's going on? Can you explain the situation? 
that's what investigators believe. They believe that this is where Joseph confronted him about writing the checks, which sparked an argument. And when Joseph returned home at around 9.30 p.m., it is believed that Chase followed him there and continued to argue with him, which led to a murder inside the McStay's new home. The defense, on the other hand, had a witness testify that Chase was at home during the time the family would have vanished. Kathy, Chase's girlfriend, testified that he was home in the evening around 7 or 8 p.m. and that he received a call on his cell phone from Joseph that evening. Chase, on the other hand, decided to let it ring because he had talked to him a million times that day. And what's strange is that this call did not appear on Chase's bill, but it appeared on Joseph's bill. It was also stated in court that near the time the family went missing, Chase had called QuickBooks from his phone and acted as Joseph, requesting that the entire QuickBooks account for the business be completely deleted from the company's servers, as well as all the data from the QuickBooks system. QuickBooks had taken notes on this conversation that Joseph had called in and requested this. And the representative remembered this conversation, stating that it was so unusual for someone to request the deletion of an account, and that he had only had clients ask him about five times for this. Because the phone number was Chase's, this was yet another piece of evidence that points to him as the suspect. And Chase explained that, well, Joseph, he was in and out of the hospital at the time for a mysterious illness that the doctors couldn't detect. And he asked Chase to call and delete everything from QuickBooks so Dan Cavanaugh couldn't do anything. You see, Dan was threatening to shut down the site, and he was also planning to sell the business. Now, if you have the time, you should definitely check out the ID Channel's documentary called Two Shallow Graves about this case. It's on Hulu. And they do an excellent job covering this case. The cell phone pings, the financial fraud, all of these clues point to Chase as the prime suspect in the murder. Now, at this point, this family has been missing for four years and eight months. Over time, he could have built a callous mental barrier blocking the reality that he had done it. In the big picture, this is a family man who provided for his family, possibly by stealing from Joseph, and who also had a gambling problem. He had a reputation to protect. He is Joseph's so-called best friend, and his name appears on the checks issued from Joseph's business account. While being investigated for the murder of two children and their parents, all of this evidence seems to keep coming back to Chase. Was it greed that drove him to defraud his best friend and then murder him and his family? But here's the twist. Could he be innocent despite all of this evidence with red lines pointing directly to him? Could he have been set up for murder by someone hiding behind the mastermind of the crime? Someone who was tech savvy. This is where Dan Cavanaugh entered the picture. As far as we know, he was cleared as a suspect fairly early in the investigation. A few things he did and attempted to do days before the family went missing make you wonder if he was involved. This guy was never called as a witness in court. In fact, even after hiring a private investigator, the defense was unable to locate him two weeks before the trial was scheduled to begin. 
Tracy, a friend of Dan Kavanaugh's, came forward to the police, claiming that Dan confessed to her that he had framed Chase Merritt for the family's murder. Now, think about that for a moment. Take into account an argument that Dan had with Joseph a year before Joseph and his family went missing. Here are a few text exchanges between Joseph and Dan. Dan stated, I'm giving you until tomorrow and I'm not messing around. Joseph responded, you want the best for me and my family, but you don't mind destroying our livelihood. Now, this is the same guy who tried to take down Joseph's business and also threatened to do so if he didn't get paid a certain amount, requesting that he be entitled to 50% of the profits, which was something that Joseph would never agree with, according to Patrick, Joseph's father. And he texts him, I, Summer, and the kids now know who the real you is and what you might do to harm me and my family. Then Dan said, don't try your guilt trip shit on me, bro. Now, during the Investigation Discovery documentary with Dan, they interview him, and he comes across as having an explosive personality. He appears arrogant and angry while explaining himself. But there's never any mention of his DNA being on anything. And according to him, he was in Hawaii at the time of the disappearance. What's suspicious about this vacation is that Dan Kavanaugh wrote himself a check for $7,500 from the business account. In terms of evidence relating to Dan, the defense called computer forensic analyst Brian LaRocque to the stand, and he testified that there were records that showed Dan accessed PayPal records for the business without being granted access, as well as the business accounts that held the funds. And this all happened after the murders. Some sources say that he actually wasn't in Hawaii, but he was in San Diego, California. Now, back to Dan's friend, Tracy, who came forward to the police claiming that Dan told her that he framed Chase Merritt for the family's murder, explained that two weeks ago, Dan told her graphic details that make you question why would he tell her these things? Or if she was making it up for whatever reason, what made her share these things with the police? Tracy explained that Dan told her the full details of what he did to the family. Now, keep in mind that for two weeks, this girl was holding this scary confession to her chest, and she's just now giving it to police. She explained that he held a knife up to Summer's throat and told Joseph to go take the kids outside. And once Joseph did, he began to rape her. She told the investigators to check the shower as there would be DNA in there. It was a rainy day, so he was covered in mud and his boots were muddy. Supposedly, it actually was a rainy day on the 4th. The police did listen to Tracy and they did take in everything with a grain of salt, but they didn't do anything with this possible lead. Without confirming or checking on this lead, they assume that she was on drugs and is most likely mad at Dan for something and is trying to pin it on him. And as far as the jury, they never saw this interview that was recorded at the police station. You know, this is really a strange thing to come up with, and it could really change your perspective on this case. Could Dan be able to stage the missing family while also aligning everything to blame Chase for the murder? If that's the case, it's a well-thought-out plan. Crazy, like jaw-dropping crazy. 
Now, law enforcement, they allegedly told Dan to stay away from people who will be out to get him, referring specifically to Chase's defense team. However, according to what we know, he was cleared by the police during their investigation. Now, consider this. Dan Kavanaugh claims that he had no idea who Chase Merritt was until Joseph vanished. Dan claims that he was in Hawaii at the time the family was murdered. And while Dan was in Hawaii, Chase called to see if he had heard from Joseph. I feel like this is just such an odd statement. How has he never met Joseph's other business partner, the one who built all of these different creations? And Dan stated that when he got this call, he looked at the QuickBooks financial data, essentially hacking into Joseph's stuff without his permission around the time that they were having payout disagreements and noticed that there was a single spreadsheet showing Chase, who owed Joseph a large debt totaling close to $30,000. And he made certain that he turned this into the police. Except for Dan, no one knew about this. The police hadn't seen it yet. And at the time, the family was simply missing. No one knew or found any evidence that suggested they were murdered. Dan and Chase met up at Dan's house shortly after the family vanished, along with Joseph's mother, Susan, to discuss the business. Dan and Chase began arguing verbally, and Chase became so enraged that he threatened to throw Dan off the balcony. Chase also confirmed that he did say this in a recorded interview, and he did feel this way at the time. And the argument was that Chase wanted to continue with the business, but Dan didn't. I know Dan was cleared, but... He just gives me this weird feeling that he could have been involved in some way. That's just my opinion. Now, throughout the trial, the defense team worked hard to make Chase look innocent. If Chase came forward and said, well, Dan was involved because we both were, he would still be guilty of murder. Instead, he simply claims that he is not guilty and was best friends with Joseph. Given the stigma that surrounds Joseph and his business, Dan and Joseph were at odds with one another. Dan claims that he was entitled to 50% of sales because he built the company. He pointed out that he was the one who was able to direct Google searches to the website. And when he noticed that he was not being paid fairly, he decided to cause harm to the business, which would then cause trouble with Joseph's family. Dan claims that he threatened to close the business and start his own fountain site, prompting Joseph to respond, Okay, well, what can I do to make it right? Dan requested that he reimburse him for the sales that he did not receive payment for. He planned to collect the money owed to him and then delete him. And that's what he said in the interview. But what he really meant was shutting down the website. He appeared to be a very scary and arrogant man, portraying himself as someone who you don't want to mess with. Now, according to his ex-girlfriend... This would be a different person than the one who came to the police station. She stated that she is afraid of him and that he makes her feel uncomfortable. Was it possible for Dan Cavanaugh to frame Chase for murder? Did he become so enraged because he was not getting what he wanted? According to Dan, the detectives told him to disappear. Is there more to this story? Now, these two weren't the only ones who were suspects from the start. There were several suspects that investigators looked into during the investigation, and it was quickly realized that many of the suspects drove a white truck. 
If you remember, the vehicle that pulled out of the family's driveway on the 4th was caught on the neighbor's security camera. Well, investigators believe that that vehicle was a white utility truck. Here's a few of the suspects who were investigated by police. There was Vic Johansson. This was Summer's ex-boyfriend. And one thing that caught the attention of the investigators was an email that he sent to Summer around Christmas time in 2009, wishing her a happy birthday and telling her that he would always love her. Now, his phone pinged in Orange County at the time that the family was murdered. So he was quickly ruled out. Michael McStay, this is Joseph's brother, was also a suspect at first, and he too had a white truck. There were a few things that were suspicious, like why didn't he go and check on his brother sooner? He claimed that he was too busy when his dad called to go check on him. Why did he take the computer from Joseph's house after the investigation? And also, according to the defense, he applied for a business loan and acted as a business owner for his brother's business, Earth Inspired Products, which this application was denied. Also in March of 2010, which would have been just a few weeks after his brother Joseph and his family disappeared, he made a statement to the Orange County Register, which is the local paper in the area, that said, quote, My fear is that I'm looking for two adult shallow graves and my two nephews' crosses. How strange is that that you would say that? And a few years later, that lives as a pretty accurate description as to where they were found. Now, in court, the defense questioned this while Michael took the stand, and he explained that that was his fear. DNA testing was performed on the evidence by both the prosecution and the defense. The prosecution used the traditional swab method, whereas the defense used the MVAC method. This method has been shown to extract 20 to 200 times more DNA than traditional methods of DNA extraction. As a result, the forensic scientist was able to identify three DNA profiles on a white cord wrapped around Joseph's body. However, Joseph's DNA was not found on the white rope-like wire, which you would think that would definitely be there. Now, you would think finding these three different DNA profiles would change the course of the investigation, but it didn't really matter that these other profiles were discovered. CODIS, which stands for Combined DNA Index System, is a national DNA database in the United States that stores DNA from convicted offenders, unsolved crime scenes, and missing persons. The defense wanted to run these DNA profiles through CODIS to see if they would get a hit. But there was a little bit of a problem. CODIS can only be accessed by law enforcement and the prosecution, not the defense. This request was denied. They explained that there wasn't enough data to even get a complete profile. This was further explained by the fact that the evidence has been so decayed over time that the DNA found wasn't enough data to even input a full profile. According to SBCSentinel.com, the laboratory where the DNA was tested stated that the level of data was below the lab's analytical threshold. This was because the breakdown of the decaying body turns into decompositional fluid, which can destroy the DNA. And after four long years of this, in addition to everything else that happens naturally in nature, there wasn't much that they could go by. It seems strange that a forensic scientist identified three separate profiles, partial or not, but it was dismissed. 
The prosecutors seemed to deflect the discovery by questioning why the murder weapon wasn't tested. The forensic scientist who took the stand stated that it wasn't tested by the defense side. This is what the prosecution believed happened. Chase and Joseph got into an argument. Possibly this was because Joseph found out that he had been writing checks from the business account. And they meet up for lunch. And this is when Joseph questions, why would he do that? And it was believed that this angered Chase. Chase ended up following Joseph to his house where they continued to argue and out of rage, Chase grabbed the sledgehammer and with such force hit Joseph in the back of the head. It's believed that Summer was inside the house with the children and was attacked next. The prosecution believed that the two kids were murdered at the gravesite. It was also considered that Summer could have been raped, but there was no confirmation of this actually happening. Now, none of this is confirmed. It's all speculation based on the evidence and cell phone data records. No one can really say what exactly happened, if it all happened in the house or if the murder even happened at the desert. The prosecution believes that there doesn't always have to be solid evidence to prove that someone is guilty. This was important because the evidence that the state had against Chase was mostly circumstantial. I think this case will always be left with unanswered questions. As far as right now, Charles or Chase Merritt sits on death row facing the crime he appeared to have committed. I think this case will always stick with me and I will always wonder, were there more people involved with this family's murder? Whatever the answer may be, we hope that the family and friends who are hurt by the loss of this family find peace somehow. And that completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week.